Hello everybody and welcome to an extra special CCPC Conversation Couch podcast. So for those of you listening, we're actually sat in my home in Southend um, and we're talking with the legend that is... JW. John Ward himself. Uh, You can watch us on YouTube talking or you can listen to us, but we are going to delve today. Now... We have just had an exciting day because we have done day one of Alex Ali Pally. By the time this comes out, it will probably be a few weeks after gone. Um, but it's been a really interesting day, hasn't it? Yeah, in a lot of ways, yeah. both in terms of people and things and organisations doing things and not doing things. So. Um, words, we really can't express some of the weirdness that we've seen. And uh, we're very, I think it's fair to say we're keen observers of human behaviours. And we've seen some very strange human behaviours um, today. But yeah, so welcome to the E5 podcast. Welcome to the Conversation Couch. So let's get straight on with it. John, before we get into technicals, we're going to do a bit of technical today. And we're going to properly wing this with the assistance of a 55-inch LED TV and a copy of BS7671 and our I Love Electrician's Mug, courtesy of Pro Electrician. By the way, this is not an advert. Um, they don't actually sponsor us, although they've given us these nice t-shirts um, because they love us so dearly. So, John, um, you're a one-man band. Yeah, just you're, me. You're not an Adrian Davy kitchen fitter. No. Nope. I have to keep reminding Adrian of that, that little uh, gem that he gave us. Um, tell us about a day in your life when you're doing this. How do you get the time to price something, do jobs, and do all the YouTube stuff? Yeah, well, it's quite difficult to get it all fitted in, but that's why the videos. Generally, there's not like one every day or anything because it would take far too long. Yeah. Um, although YouTube pays a bit of money, it's nowhere near enough to actually live on, so hence I can't do it full time. And I probably wouldn't want to do it full time even if I could because obviously then you get out of touch with doing the actual proper work. So, yeah, you are still a very much a trading on the tools guy. So, you're not registered of any professional body? Not at the moment. No, E5 not going to become a professional body anytime, so don't even think it, guys and girls. Um, so, what do you do? Do you price your jobs up in the evenings, or do you? Yeah, usually. So I've got it in the day. I mean, if it's a if it's a really simple thing, then I can just give them the price then, because some people want price this for everything, even if just don't tell me, tell me give me a price to change this light switch. Yeah, yeah, wet finger in the yeah. Must, yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I price stuff up in the evening, and generally, so I send it by email these days. Dot generally in the post, because who wants that now? And uh, yeah, most of what I do is. It's all domestic, or mostly domestic, and it's mostly maintenance and repair and smaller stuff. And that's why I'm not registered with any competent person scheme, because I don't do metaphorical works. Yeah, Part P, um, we all had such high hopes for it when it came out, and it's just, I think the only thing Part P has done is make people do more testing and raise awareness of the need to test. Uh, Again, my personal and professional opinion, but um, having lived through its birth, and as well as the colour changes in 2004 of cable. So I've been through all those weird and wonderful times where the industry was in uproar. Um, so what, what percentage do you do then of spark, day-to-day sparking and YouTube? Because your content is, well, let's can we tell everybody, it's a little bit of confessional here. So all of John's arc fault detection came from his good pals in E5 um, and a few of the other little devices and bits and bobs, which we happily give to him 
because you are an absolute wizard at pulling stuff apart. Yeah, percentage-wise, it does vary. I tend to do the videos, like, take a whole day, like at the weekend, to do, like, two or three in a whole day, which is not just recording them. It's also then having to edit them all and check them all and upload them all and do all that. And then, of course, there's replying to the lovely comments, which people insist on leaving, some of which are perfectly okay, but then, of course, there's always those other comments, which uh, obviously we just don't bother replying to them. So if you put any joint comments on the videos, they'll probably get left there and they won't get a reply, so uh, wasting time. That's a really nice way to say, go away and leave me yeah. alone, you strange commenters. Um, yeah, I've engaged with some of the bad comments, but I, in fairness, I have actually engaged with one or two bad comments, which they're, they're deleted now, but it, the only reason they're deleted is because I actually knew the person who was commenting but they hid behind a name, which was quite funny. It's a really small world, this electrical industry. Social media is making it a very, very, very small world. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so you'll do, you do YouTube stuff in the... So you must have to do some research and prep, because... Yeah, it depends on the video. I mean, some of them, there isn't really much, or in some cases any, but a lot of them, like the search protection stuff, there's a whole pile of actual work before you can even record anything, because you've got to get the actual content prepared and what you're going to say and what you're going to cover. And obviously you don't want to put sort of six hours of content in a single video, so it's got to decide this is going here, this is going somewhere else. Yeah, listen, I, I've got I've got three or four videos that are just simmering, and the more research I go into, the more down the rabbit hole I appear to go. Um, okay, so there's no behind-the-scenes documentaries of your life coming out anytime soon, so we're not going to ask John any more probing questions about his personal life because it's your personal life. So you're an unregistered electrician, you are working locally in the Dorset area? Yeah, mostly Paul and Bournemouth. Paul and Bournemouth, right down on the south coast. You are now coming to most of the Alexis with us. Um, we seem to be doing more and more bits together, which is good. You occasionally jump in on our podcasts in the evenings, which is great because you're valued and welcome and it's nice to have you on them. So thank you very much for all the stuff you've done on that. But I want to go, me and you, when we talk, we normally go technical. So a few bits and bobs it's probably worth highlighting just from Alex, I think, today on the technical stuff. So one of the things that they did, they've announced a mem- so when by the time you listen to this, Amendment 1 will be out. And one of the one of the key things that they said for Amendment 1 was there was a uh, a requirement. In fact, if you don't mind, I actually took a picture. And I'm I want to read that picture because it had it on a slide for the um Right, so I can't find it, so I've evidently taken it in a video form. I have. Basically, what it was, there's a, there's a new regulation now that requires the designer or the end, not end user, the installer to verify compliance with the directives for that kit. So, in far as directives, Mr. Skirm would normally jump in here. Um, low voltage directive or machinery directives or EMC directives. Directives are European, pan-European. They're basically the highest directives for product, electrical, or system safety you get. Under them, each country has their own uh, laws, electricity at work regs, EMC um, regulations, etc. And then they filter down into standards, etc. And that's all across Europe. So there's now this requirement to verify. And on the panel, they said, you must get a declaration of conformity. Well, that's great because, John... Here is yep. my declaration of conformity. Yeah. And you're going to go, yeah. well, that's great. So if I open up the back and you've told me you're going to comply with 600 standards, um, okay, well, how did you comply with BSCN 61557? 
Um, yeah. What about clause 26.1? Um, so a little word of advice for everyone listening. I have a lot of experience with declaration conformances. Uh, Paul Skirm has far more, and we should actually do a podcast just on that. But when you ask manufacturers for all of the information behind their declaration of conformance, they will be very hesitant at forthcoming because they will say it's our intellectual property, we don't want to share it, you can come to us. I mean, I've asked for declaration conformance for light fittings, luminaires, and I've agreed to sign NDAs. I've gone and looked at it and I've gone, well, hang on a minute, this is rubbish. What about this standard, this regulation, this EMC requirement? Because if you buy a luminaire and you put it in a house, fine. But if you take that luminaire and you put it in a railway environment and it's got drivers and equipment and the digital equipment in it, it will perform differently because of the external influences. So when you're selecting products, there seems to be more of a emphasis they've snuck in. And I'm going to use that term snuck in, although it's kind of already always been there. Um, more emphasis on you must ensure compliance. It is a very rocky road for a contractor, designer and installer because manufacturers genuinely don't like this. And I know... I've had to deal with it very, very recently. So that was one thing that came out. Yeah. What do you think about it? Yeah, it's a bit, uh, a bit shady, isn't it, really, putting that in there? So. It's Teflon in it off. So everything in this book is your responsibility and nobody else is great. Thanks for that. Where's my help? I will put, you can pay for a course. Wonderful. Cheers for that. So the other, the other big thing that we found about today, we did a surge protection panel. So is it fair to say that the wonderful uh, Kirsty Johnson of Surge Protection Devices Limited, this is the wonderful pamphlet, you can't miss them because they're bright yellow as Kirsty was today, and um, she very kindly invited us on a Surge Protection panel to talk, it was, it was quite a good panel, it was uh, I think very simply broke down into LPZ zone 0, 1, 2 and 3 and all that and we discussed the different types and application of Surge Protection. But there was a there was a there was a bit of a uh, well we'll get Kirsty onto a podcast. It's fair to say I think Kirsty come onto a podcast and and by the way just to be clear we're not sponsored by Kirsty. Um, I know people are thinking oh there's a lot of adverts here. No there isn't. We love Pro Electrician and they gave us a free mug. Sue me. Um, Social protection devices. Wonderful people. Very open. Very transparent. Very ethical company. And. Um, They've been really kind and open and transparent, which we love when manufacturers like ACO, very open, very transparent. Yeah. So uh, there was a bit of a debate, wasn't there, over um, compliance, it's yeah. fair to say, of the assembly. So if you bear with me, because for the avoidance of fact, because some people listening to this podcast may say we're technically inaccurate. Well, just as an indemnifier for E5, anything we say in this is our opinions, because we talk tech all the time. But what we always encourage you guys, which is why we always tell you the standards, is to go away, research, form your own opinion. Maybe you will find something that we have missed. Please come on to this podcast because I genuinely want this podcast to be the industry's voice. I'm, I'm not, I'm, again, I'm not slating other podcasts. The EGT guys do a wonderful job with their stuff and we'll be doing something with them soon uh, again. But we genuinely want people to go on a journey of self-improvement, continuous improvement. So if we miss something, please tell us. But there is a, there's a number of causes in, uh, clauses blah, 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 in 7671. So if you don't mind, John, I'm going to take you on a whistle-stop tour of said clauses. Oh, dear, look at this. So um, 
Regulation 113.1, this is where you can all switch off now. The regulations apply to items of electrical equipment only so far as selection and application of the equipment in the installations are concerned. The regulations do not deal with the requirements for the construction of assemblies of electrical equipment, which are required to comply with appropriate standards. Please note that there is, as we know in Amendment 3, the assembly requirement for fire protection, i.e. metal enclosures. Now, one of the interesting things we saw today, John, I tell you what, you tell everybody, you tell it because you tell it better than me. Yeah. I'll, I'll put the thing on this screen which we can read out We're using technology in this one. Yeah, yeah. this is uh, integration of devices and components. What's the regulation, John? It's uh, 536 So 203 means it's a UK specific yeah. regulation, which means the JPL Wire and Regulations Committee, Joint Power and Electrical, have written or uh, interpreted the requirements and have wrote a UK specific uh, clause for the wiring regulations. So let's just try and get on playing with technology now and it's just backfiring. So what does it say, JW? Okay, well we've got the relevant part of the BSEN 61439 series shall be applied to the integration of mechanical and electrical devices and components, for example, circuit breakers, control devices, bus bars into an empty enclosure or existing low voltage assembly. Okay, so what they're basically saying there is you have to look at a suite of BS or European standards called 61439 and you have to select the relevant components depending on what you're doing, whether it's circuit breakers, consumer unit assemblies, etc, etc. So all that's saying is, is don't look here, look in the EN standards. And that's very relevant because we've just read the first regulation in Fundamental Principles that has also said don't really look in the wine regulations. However, John, what else does it say? Yeah, we've got uh, in low voltage assemblies to the BSEM 61439 series, for example, consumer units, distribution boards, incorporated in devices and components, shall only be those declared suitable according to the assembly manufacturer's instructions or literature. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. So, are you saying. So, okay, let me. You tell me if I've read this wrong. So, in low voltage assemblies, consumer units, incorporated devices, and components, shall only be declared suitable according to... So if I'm... Let's pretend I'm MK, because MK ain't making boards anymore. So let's pretend I'm MK. I'm not representative of MK or anything like that. But I, I'm MK, and I want to include a surge protection device in an MK board. This regulation here, that second paragraph, basically says it's up to the manufacturer of the equipment to say yeah or no. Yeah, that's it. Is there any other guidance for us, John? There is. There's a note one. Tell us, John. Which is, the use of individual components complying with their respective product standards does not indicate their compatibility when installed with other components in low-voltage switchgear and control gear assembly. Okay, so that's saying if you use other things, that's not saying it's fully compatible yet, but there's got to be more to that. There is. And note number two. Incorporated components inside the assembly can be from different manufacturers. Ooh, so interesting. So uh, it's a bit of a double standard there, isn't yeah. there, really? There is a bit of a double standard. So note two, incorporating components inside can be from different manufacturers. So that's really interesting. So when people talk about, you know, the, the assembly standard 61439, 
Um, that series covers a hell of a lot, doesn't it? It covers com- yeah. all sorts of things around um, uh, consumer units, etc. But but it says you can as long as the manufacturer accepts it. Now, this is quite interesting, John, because I've always had this view. And, and again, it's that thermal, magnetic and chemical reactions, the fundamental breakdown of an electrical installation. We're now looking at thermal, magnetic as an effect, aren't we? So... When you put a row of circuit breakers or RCBOs, they have coils, bimetallic strips, etc. They work via thermal properties from fault currents or stable electromagnetic fields. You put them all together, they're only plastic and exactly shielded. So you have to make sure all of those uh, mutually work together and one does not interfere or damage the other, which is absolutely fair enough. But this is saying that you can have different manufacturers, but someone has got to do the work. Someone's got to do the due diligence. Someone's got to make sure that the differences, whether it be, I don't know, um, sensitivity to electromagnetic interference. Because you may have a RCBO to uh, BS4293 in a board, you may want to put a 61009, but when you go really deep into the due due diligence, you may find that actually um, the electromagnetic effects uh, on that board or the radiated emissions or the conducted emissions may actually interfere with each other they may cancel each other out they may blind i think is the term they've adapted for rcds so this is this is fascinating because incorporated components um can be from different manufacturers it then goes on to say it's essential that all incorporated components so i'm talking about surge protection timers doorbells even those um what do you call them um yeah, it's the smart doorbells, isn't it? I can't remember what the name is. Um, it says, components should have had their compatibility for the final enclosed arrangements verified by the original manufacturer. So in theory, a surge protection manufacturer can say, I believe this complies. We've done the thermal stresses. We've done the magnets. It's a passive device. Um, we believe it's compatible. They should be able to present that information. And the manufacturer should either come up with a counter argument or they have to accept by default. So, um, it then goes on to say, um, verified by the original manufacturer of the assembly and be assembled in accordance with their instructions, i.e. consumer unit manufacturer. The original manufacturer is the organisation that carried out the original design of the assembly. But what if the designer, let's say I'm the designer, I want to modify it. Let's say I choose to modify this. So, let's go back to the blue book. Forgive us for this, if you're watching this, this is probably as boring as it sounds. Regulation 1151, for installations in premises which a licensing or other authority exercises statutory control, the requirements of that authority should be ascertained and complied within the design and execution. Right, so I work in a railway. Railways are licensed. This is a minimum standard that I work from, not to. So if I say that I want to buy a, I don't know, MK or Hager or Chint or Schneider or or any of the other manufacturers or fuse box it's down to me if i choose to modify it because um and this is for those listening or watching how many manufacturers have, have actually successfully upheld a warranty other than a we've got a recall for safety reasons like the volex stuff that's on electrical safety first so if you want to know whether there's any recalls go on electrical safety first and they've got a whole recalls tab um but it's down to me because I take on the design. I buy the unit, they're telling me it's compliant for general use, but I then have to select and erect that unit suitable for my environment 
and my operational needs. So it says the original work manufacturer is carried out, is the organization to carry the original design and associate verification. So if I go to MK or Hager, they should be able to, under the next amendment one, give me every single ins and in and outs of everything they've done. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a question coming for somebody. Um, verification of switch switchgear to the relevant parts of 61439. Now, the beautiful thing about BSCN standards is you cannot doubt. You don't have to follow every clause religiously, but you have to, if you dare opt out of this book or anything else, let's be clear, it's a guidance note. If you opt out, you must be able to justify in writing and be able to defend that decision in a court of law, which means you have to be able to go on a journey explaining why you've exempted, what your mitigation is, your operational reasons, and get sign-off, which is what we do on railways when we don't put RCDs and line circuits. Um, if an assembly, last bit, this is really important, guys and girls, so forgive us. If an assembly deviates from its original manufacturing instructions or includes components like doorbell, transformer, yep. surge protection device, uh, all these other things, or includes components not included in the original verification. So these guys will take a fuse box, pretend it's a fuse box, say six-way with their own main switch and all it. They will send that away and burn it test it, look for radiated emissions, invisible electricity, conducted emissions, and they'll say that will perform normally at, I think it's, do they test it at like 30 degrees or something like that, at desert yeah. temperature? There's also a derating, if you watch Dave Watts' videos about should we apply derating factors to MCBs? Because the more you have, the more thermal energy they generate, etc. because they use electricity as a device, um, especially electronics. So it then says, not including the person introducing deviation becomes the original manufacturer with corresponding obligations. So that, hmm. So basically, you can be from different manufacturers. Please don't mix and match MCBs or RCDs because that's just a stupid, stupid thing. Um, unless it's a really high risk or old installation and cost is prohibitive and all that. And then you will seek um, the manufacturer's buy-in. But I can stick, that says, I can stick whatever I want in whatever board I want. Yep, as long as you are the taking As long as I'm able to justify yep. it. Really interesting. So that means technically, if I want to put one of these in any board I want, I can. Yeah. But I yeah. need the manufacturers buying on that. But the manufacturers won't give me buying because they all produce. So they'll give you an example, John. I've just bought a uh, fuse box, okay, the CP fuse boxes um, for my home, and that comes with a main switch with a surge protection device. But if I choose to install this, what can they do about it? Yeah. Well, they're not going to sue me, for one, because um, it's my installation and I can justify it. So what I'm going to look for as a competent professional is I'm going to do an assessment of all the different characteristics of these devices. So the energy let through, um, you know, the tolerance to um, thermal, magnetic, voltage stresses. And I'm going to pick the best one. I'm not saying these are the best, by the way. I'm just saying I'm going to pick the best one based on what protection I want to afford. I'm not going to take what the manufacturer gives me because it's generic. Yeah. Why would I do that? So it, just to be wary, guys, if make sure you do your due diligence. Ask manufacturers if you can choose whichever device you want. Again, stick with the same breakers but again if you're doing domestic it's 61008 uh, sorry 61009 608 breakers 
um, art fox protection, um, which again, optional. But surge protection, you can pick what you want. You go in commercial industrial, you do what you want, you pick what you want, you justify it, it's a large cost. So that regulation 5364203 is a fascinating one. It really is fascinating because if you follow that, then when you get them ring doorbells and you hardwire remains, do you have to get permission from Fusebox to put it in? Well, do they do they agree to take on uh, the ring? Sorry, or, or the manufacturers of these smart door? Do they agree to take on this? No, they don't. It's an issue for trading standards. You will need an instant to set a precedence. It's a gap in the industry. So I wanted to run through that because it was something we saw today and I thought it was really important to just focus on that one very, very serious point in the regs. And what's your thoughts on it, John? Yeah, well, absolutely. So, yeah, like this, say, the things here, which if you're not watching the video, it's from the uh, surge protection devices people in yellow. Um, yeah, if you want to put one of those in a consumer unit from someone else, then you can, provided, of course, that you are taking responsibility for that. Hmm. But what worries me now is the assemblies. I will want to now know more information. So I'm going to go back to Fusebox and I'm going to ask them for the ins and outs of everything. I want all their paperwork, all their assurance, all their declarations of conformance. And I want to see what their let-through energy is for their surge protection device against others. Because I want the best surge protection device for my home. Type 2, obviously. There's no need for Type 1 because this is a non-TT uh, underground fed installation the reason I'm having surge protection is the value of the property and everything in it is worth more to me so I'm I'm basically using that I know the local transformer because I'm really sad it's less than a kilometer away it's down it's down there I do look for these things John sorry um, but it's really worth it's worth people knowing um, that you have freedom of choice on stuff like that I think that's really really important now you, you sneaky devil, um, you have done four, by the time this comes out, four surge protection videos. Yeah, that's right. Three lengthy-ish ones and one that's a bit shorter. But... He's always teaching, man. He's always teaching. So your surge protection videos, I've watched three of them, um, and they're brilliant. They're brilliant. The takedown, uh, the, the, the pulling apart of the one you bought from China, the more industrial uh, den one, which is quite an interesting one, I found personally. Definitely um, lots of stuff in lots there. Lots of nice it? things inside, yeah. So surge protection is something that I think we've seen today. The industry, there's a lot of unsuredness because, I mean, I used this, I used this term earlier on. If you look at the 18th edition of wiring regulations, we now have... Um, Type A, Type B, Type F RCBOs or RCDs. We've now got arc fault detection, 62606, and we've now got surge protection. Now, everybody thinks it's a new thing. It, it kind of isn't because commercial industrial, it's been around for years via the old lightning protection standards, 62651 and 62305. It's always existed, but now it's more prevalent because of the value and the technology we're using. And, and remember, a lot of the choices on surge protection are also from internal loads. So I have two variable speed drives, fridge, freezer, uh, switching loads of these electronics, the LED lights for the drivers where the inrush is really high. Um, all it takes is an inrush with a fault and you could create a quite a large uh, surge load. So 
that was one of the things that was very difficult getting across to everybody today because a lot of good people trying to really focus hard on the risk assessment, the risk assessment. I think that risk assessment, to be honest with you, is just, I don't know. We can do it, but it's just very complex and it's not its not really what sparks do. No, I mean, it's in there, but in most certainly for domestic installations, there's not really any point in doing it because ultimately it's going to take you a certain amount of time to do it only to discover that you either don't need it or you do need it anyway. And ultimately, even if you, even if you say it doesn't need it, it's all going to be based on, say, length of the cables under the ground and how far away the transformer is or whatever. So ultimately, put the stuff in. Is it really worth doing that calculation just to prove that in theory no. you might not need it? Well, no. And the thing is, is for me, I, if somebody says to me, do you, would you recommend um, surge protection in a house? And I'll go to them, where are you? And then if it's in a countryside, I'll go, yeah, well, you'll probably want type one and type two. More importantly, if you're in a, if you're in a semi-rural uh, area or a town or a city, if you've got underground cables, a lot of people are going, well, I don't really need it. But then you've got a BT wire coming into your house. So you might want a type three surge protection on the BT line because that's where a transient or a surge could enter your property. So there's, there's a potential there. Um, so it's a different way of thinking, but it's just that, what I call additional, additional protection um, for your home. Yeah, and I say all the stuff that comes in, so it's not obviously just domain wiring, it is things like the phone line and the TV wires coming in and anything else that comes in pretty much from outside. And even if you did that risk assessment and it said, oh yeah, you don't need it and it's absolutely fine, that's only for stuff coming in from outside. So even with that, you've still got possible things from inside the installation, like when you say you switch stuff on and off. So even there, that risk assessment isn't actually that much use, certainly in domestic installation. Yeah, I, I, I think some a, a genius physicist came up with a great calc to justify it. I don't think it's needed. I think the application of relevant safety devices proportionate to cost are good. For me, I would recommend surge protection within an installation more than I would AFDD, given the value, uh, the the costs of the units. Um, it's very interesting to see because you and I both know I've got surge protection issues um, on railways um, because they don't last very long because of HV volt, which is nearby. So it's worthwhile trying to understand the external influences in the area you're in. But more importantly, just going back to our wonderful little um, lesson in regulations and assemblies. I have here a hysterical, and I'll use that term correctly, Europa Components, which obviously was given out at um, one of the Alexis or one of the trade shows. And it, um, it's got DEN and Merson surge protection on the back. It complies with IEE 18th edition regs. I've never read the mm. IEE 18th edition regs. So this is obviously a parallel universe one. Um, because some people will say that we're obviously just being opinionated or non-factual or just misleading. Hi, everybody. Um, and it has nominal discharge currents and all that good stuff, fully compliant. But it says here, compact fitting can be used with any brand of consume unit. So, any brand of consume unit. Were we looking at the... Um, den surge protection website today yeah, did we well. see a hager board with some den surge protection yeah, that's right but don't hager have their own brand of surge protection they do i'm confused mm. Mm. 
So are the manufacturers maybe preaching one rule, but not allowing us to do something else, even though the regulations allow it? Yeah, looks like it. Hmm. Yeah, anyway, so um, we're going to invite anyone who works in the surge protection industry to come in and do a podcast with us, because it's a fascinating subject. For me, a SPD is a passive device. It sits there waiting for a rise in voltage, and then it gets rid of it. So it's a very simple, passive way to protect your installation. Yeah, for the price of it, yeah, it's a no-brainer. Yeah, and on the price thing, there's that exclusion where you can say that if there's nothing in the installation of a certain value, or it's not going to be damaged, and it doesn't justify paying for a surge protection, then you don't have to fit it. But the problem is that for domestic, surge protection, 50 to 100 pounds, how many houses don't have more than 50 pounds of the electronic stuff in them? And of course the answer is none of them. One well, TV is already massively over the top of that. So. I think today I said that, um, you, I think one of my words was in Ali Pali was, you can't send me down to, say, a house in Broadwater Farm and tell me there isn't a 55-inch widescreen TV, three or four iPads, and two or three Xboxes, a load of mobile phones or Motorola or whatever, and that in itself you're looking at a chunk of five to ten grand. Okay, you've then got your socket outlets, with your you've got all sorts of electronics, your inverter-driven washing machines, all sorts of stuff. It's going to be really interesting, though, the configuration of electrical installations. Looking at the RCD selection stuff, where you can't have an AC downstream, upstream of an A-type. Because um, you put an A-type, boiler manufacturers are now recommending A-type RCD fuse spurs. I mean, what the hell? If it's an AC in your board, pointless. And again, there is an IEC standard that clearly configures. We put it on, it's on our Instagram page and it's on our Twitter where we put, we, we take the snapshot of the visual where you're going to have to Henley block the main tails, go off with a type B if you've got that, have type A at the top. And so, yeah, there's, there's a lot more complex configurations of installations. I don't think surge protection is something to worry about. I think we just need to find the right product and make sure if it's a domestic home, if it isn't overhead line, it's type two in the board, it's type three on your BT line. If you're in the countryside, urban, TT, yeah, you can do your calc, or you can just stick type one, type two, and type three, and be done with the damn thing. That's, yeah, ooh, yeah. Um, there's gonna be a lot of comments on that one, isn't there? Have I just flippantly gone yeah, through it? Yeah, probably have, yeah. Blame him, he does the videos, you just do it far more politer than me. Um, but yeah, so hello industry again. Hi. Hopefully you're watching or listening. We, we can say what we want because we're not sponsored and, and all the rest of it. So um, what else have you thought of today then? What, what was your views on Alex? Well, it was very interesting. Some interesting people that we met. And they, uh, I don't know if we should well. edit this. We don't normally edit this, by the way. We just cut it in and in the end. Um, we met some wonderful people who were, it was very, very humbling. So anyone who comes to say hello, don't be afraid. Do me one favor. Just introduce yourself. Don't start talking and then just wander off. We want to know who you are and shake your hand. And thank you for taking the time to come up and say hello. We did meet some rather unique and special characters. I think we are as well, by the way, unique and special, but oh, I can't say any more without swearing. This yeah. is a clean podcast conversation couch. Um, 
Let's just say that things that we've seen earlier, we couldn't actually uh, repeat on here, and we can't name any names either. So, uh, I have never, right, okay, so look at my face. I have never heard John Ward swear so much in all my life. He was nearly punching this wall. This conversation couch was nearly destroyed. Oh, and by the way, for those who are wondering about the conversation couch, this was blessed, okay, by unicorn dust. The unicorns of Ikea. Now, that is weird and random. Um, but this conversation couch is where you sit and tell the truth. You're locked to the truth. Honesty, integrity is one of our key pillars. Um, I can't. I'll be honest with you. We, we're recording this in shock at the moment because we have watched some really, really, really weird stuff today. Really weird. And I'm not just talking about Alex. I'm talking about afterwards when we got back. Um, I don't think disturbing is the word. No, it's just, it's beyond that, isn't it, really? I never yeah. thought we would both be so choice that shocked. Uh, what we watched. Um, wow. Uh, yeah. So anyway, for those listening, sorry, we're not, we're, we're rambling on here. Um, I think we just, just a couple of bits. So um, for those of you who are listening or watching, um, we've started doing a podcast. Uh, it's, I think it was September 24th. We are not out to compete with the Electrician's Guide to Everything. We wanted to do, and they've encouraged us to do something in parallel. Um, they are going to be coming on and doing a swap cast with us in March. That's uh, Ricky and Sam. We are deeply humbled if you're listening to this. We would like to thank you. But one thing that we need to set our stall out with, there are people who've come on here, and I don't want this to be a John Ward and Paul Meenan podcast or conversation couch, yes. But we want people with passion who have a story to tell or a lesson learnt or a good practice or a tip or advice or want to share their journey to come on and talk to us as co-hosts because this the industry owns this. I'm not talking about the manufacturers or the, the voluntary bodies. The industry, the guys and girls doing the do, whether they're sparks, whether they're managers, whether they're engineers, whether they're clients, that's who owns this podcast. So if you want to do it, um, come on, have a chat with us. If you like it and you're happy with what you've done, get other people involved. You know, tell us your stories because this could be a fantastic repository of knowledge. Luke Wichard, my God, Lee Ward, wow, Lee Ward's, yeah. woo, you'll, you know, this will be out by the time Lee Ward's ones are done. Um, you know, your stuff, um, Dave Watts. I mean, Dave Watts has still got to cover the training industry, so that'll be a five-part series, no doubt. Um, and it's a really interesting year because I think there's going to be a lot of changes possibly growing in the background in the industry. Um, and I want those changes. I'm desperate for those changes to impact electricians in a more positive way that gives them a bit of hope to say, oh, something different coming maybe or something better or some different choices coming. And, and that's good. Oh, and by the way, for the record, Stroma are still Tesco value. Um, they're so Tesco value, Napit bought them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Napit bought them. So, um, although in fairness, in my defence, Stroma were very good for their members. They had rigorous processes and control measures, um, and they sometimes did amazing things for their members, and they sometimes didn't do, but some people would manipulate the system. Just to be fair, balanced, and reasonable, um, that's a, an informed opinion of two individuals. So... Um, yeah, John, is there anything else you want to talk about while we're doing this, or do you think we should just... Well, I think we're pretty much done. I'll just add that uh, if anybody out there is going to put stuff on social media, whether that be Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, or anything else, 
Please make sure that it's reasonable and no, decent. And no, John, whatever. John, no. No, 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 John, you cannot say that because you'll be called the E5 police or the Twitter police or the Instagram police or the YouTube police. I say to that, um, no, we're not. But I'm telling you now, I swear to God, if you saw what we saw today, wow. Um, my, wow, I just, yeah. Um, I can't describe it. I cannot describe how utterly awful some of the stuff out there is. And I'll be honest with you, everything I've seen so far is amazing, world-class benchmark, but wow, oh God, oh wow. And yeah, uh, if you if, if you do want to do social media, and we're not experts, we're probably crap at it, to be honest with you. Yeah. Although you've got... 110,000, what do you call them? Followers or? Subscribers on YouTube. That's the correct, subscribers. Because um, followers is a bit culty and I've already been accused of being a religion today. So mm-hmm. that was really weird. Apparently E5's a religion. Yeah. So yeah, I put that one right. Don't worry about that. Um, yeah, so if you need any help or advice, uh, I admire people who put themselves out there who are learning and are humble, but, oof. I'm just, I'm sorry, I'm just stunned uh, with what we've saw today, to be honest with you. Um, from a conversation council perspective, John, is there anything else you would like to talk about? Is there anything you want to ask me? You're going to say no, I know you are. Yeah, not really, no. Sorry. You fucker. Well, I'm sorry, I'm not supposed to swear. There you go. So there's John Moore's deep and probing interview of Mr. Mean, and Dempsey did it anyway. Um, so I think we should just end conversation couch I don't know how long we've been going for but I'm sure it's enough um, John thank you we're back at Alex tomorrow yeah this will be out time. when you get home oh you can't email it to me because I've my, my computer blew up yesterday so I've got no IT so I'm not recording any podcasts so this is on John's video so you can put it on the YouTube channel can't yeah, you? I can put it there. right so John will upload this and we'll release it whenever um, thank you very much for listening Thank you very much for watching. Thank you very much for being kind and humble. Um, and until the next podcast, thank you, JW. Yep. Thank you, PM. <sighs> um, take care of yourself and each other. Bye-bye. Bye.